Douglas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 6, 1882 in England, Demon Days. Stumps had barely been drawn on the final test of the 1881-82 summer when the Australian touring side for England boarded their ship to depart on their month-long voyage. The core of the side was battle-hardened from many years of high-level cricket and were experienced in English conditions. Billy Murdoch was once again the captain, joining fellow three-time tourists Jack Blackham, Alec Bannerman, Harry Boyle and Fred Spothoff. They were joined by Tom Horan, Joey Palmer, Percy McDonnell, George Bonner and Tom Garrett, who had all toured England before as well. The newcomers included George Giffen, Sam Jones and Hugh Massey, who had made their test debuts the previous Australian summer. The most unfortunate omission was backup wicketkeeper Affy Jarvis, stuck behind Blackham and Murdoch as wicketkeeping options. McDonald was so committed to the tour that he had to be carried aboard the ship bearing the cricketers due to being struck down by sunstroke in the final test of the summer. The long trip to England offered the opportunity for a variety of entertainments. The team was banqueted in Melbourne and Adelaide, whilst there were nightly concerts and fancy dress shows put on by the players on board the ship, though one act performed by Murdoch and the tour manager Beale would not have gone down well with Harry Connick Jr. George Bonner, a remarkably strong man, bet a fellow passenger that he could throw a cricket ball over 100 yards on their first day on English soil. He won the wager comfortably with a throw of 104 yards, although it was not his own personal record, which stood at 131 yards. This tour was much better organised than the previous one, with the issues caused by the Sydney riot behind the two cricketing nations. The Australians were a highly sought-after opponent by the county sides, with their ability to draw a crowd and therefore turn a tidy profit the key motivation for the locals. Of the 39 matches played on the tour, 33 would be considered to be a first-class standing. This compared to only nine games being a first-class on the previous tour in 1880. Four players ended up taking over 100 first-class wickets on the tour, Spotheth, Boyle, Palmer and Garrett all achieving the feat, whilst Bannerman, Massey and Murdoch would all top 1,000 runs. Hugh Massey started the tour with a bang. Opening the batting against Oxford University, he smashed a double century in under three hours. He dominated the innings so much that he brought up his second century, whilst only 12 runs came at the other end. The Australians were gone to win by nine wickets after forcing Oxford to follow on. The following match against Sussex saw the Australians post the highest first-class total to that time, 643. 286 of these came from the bat of the captain. The Australians won by an innings, Joey Palmer taking six wickets in the second innings, including a hat-trick. It would take 10 weeks into the tour before they first tasted defeat, losing to a Cambridge University side that included three English test cricketers. Following this loss, they went on an undefeated streak that included 14 wins in 19 matches played. George Giffen, who was sparingly used due to the domination of Australia's frontline bowlers, took 8 for 49 against the gentlemen of England made up entirely of amateurs, which included W.G. Grace amongst nine past and future test cricketers, in an innings victory. The English players, the name for the professionals, outdid their social betters, however, by defeating the Australians by an innings with a side entirely made up of past and future test players. Spotheth outdid Giffen with the extraordinary figures of 9 for 51 against Somerset amongst 13 for the match. Wherever they travelled, crowds flocked to witness the exploits of the Australians, with Bonner being a big drawcard with his ability to clear the boundaries. Despite their profile and the fact that four such matches had taken place during the previous tour of Australia, only one game that would go on to be classed as a test match was scheduled. This was to take place at the Oval, just as the first test in England had been in 1880. Lord Harris was the chief selector for the English, and the Australians expected him to lead the side again. However, he didn't select himself, with captaincy being given to Albert Monkey Hornby. Neither was Arthur Shrewsbury selected, who the Australians considered to be the best batsman in England after WG. The English side did include familiar foes such as George Ulliott, Edmund Peake, Dick Barlow and Bunny Lucas. The Australians left out Percy McDonnell, who had not been performing at his usual standard due to after-effects from the heat stroke the previous Australian summer, whilst Joey Palmer, their second-best bowler on tour, had suffered an injury earlier in the month and would miss the remaining matches, including this test. 
Overall, the expectation was that the combined English side was quite superior to that of the Australians. To that point in the first-class season, the chosen English batsmen had more impressive records than that of the touring side, with eight of their batsmen averaging 29 and above, compared to only two of the Australians. Not including that number was WG Grace, the good Dr. Silverguard, the best batsman in England despite uninspiring numbers this season. English rated the Australians bowling higher, but with Pete and Barlow averaging just over 10 runs per wicket, local pundits felt that this matchup was nullified somewhat and that the superior English batting would win the day. Murdoch won the toss and chose to bat. Bannerman and Massey were sent out to open on what appeared to be a difficult pitch, having been exposed to two days of rain prior to the game. However, Massey couldn't blame the pitch conditions for his dismissal, as he was bowled off a full toss for one by Ulliott in his second over. This brought the captain in to join Bannerman. They progressed the score along carefully until it reached 20. At this stage, the English bowling and fielding tightened up, with Pete and Barlow combining to bowl 20 successive maidens. Murdoch finally added to the score with a single, before he managed to edge a ball onto his wicket from Pete, out for 13. Bonner was then set in to use his big hitting to unsettle the bowling, but Barlow clean bowled him for only a single. Horan joined Bannerman, the Stonewall having spent 70 minutes at the crease for only 9 runs. He attempted to steer Pete behind point, but WG Grace, in an athletic act that belied his size, took a diving left-handed catch low to the ground. Horan and Giffen then both fell with a score on 30, leaving the Australians with only 4 wickets in hand. Blackham and Garrett were now at the wicket. They attempted a repair job, trying to eke as many runs out of the innings as they could. They managed a partnership of 18 and had reached a lunch break, but on the resumption of play, Garrett was caught trying to clear the long off for 10. Ball could only add two, whilst Blackham was eventually caught after skying a ball. Spofforth, last man in, managed to crack a boundary, but Jones was then out for a duck, ending the innings. In just over two hours and 80 overs of play, the Australians had only managed 63 runs. Even given the difficult conditions, the Australians had no answers to the disciplined lines and lengths of the English bowlers. After the innings break, Barlow and Grace opened for the home side, while Spofforth and Garrett commenced bowling. The English score had progressed to 13 when Grace was bowled by Spofforth, the first wicket for a man whose legendary performance would almost single-handedly create the myth of the Ashes. Frederick Robert Spofforth was born on the 9th of September 1853 in Balmain, New South Wales. The son of a bank clerk, the profession he would take up himself, Spofforth spent time in New Zealand before returning to Australia. It was here that he witnessed the touring English side of 1863-64 play the New South Wales side. This would change the course of young Spofford's life, as it introduced him to overarm bowling, which had only recently been made legal. He worked hard on all aspects of this new technique, developing a high leap before delivery that allowed him to send down the ball at a higher pace than most of his contemporaries. He was also a cunning bowler, capable of cutting the ball both ways, and was an expert at setting up batsmen over multiple deliveries. 120 years before Steve Waugh, he also developed the technique of mental disintegration, with his withering stares at opposition batsmen almost as scary as his bowling. Spofforth made his debut as an 18-year-old in 1874. In his second season, he took nine wickets in a 195 win for New South Wales against Victoria. He was approached to appear in the first combined match against the Lillywhite's touring side, but refused as his friend Billy Murdoch was not chosen as wicketkeeper. He did appear in the second match, where he took four wickets in a losing cause. It was on the tour of England in 1878 where he began to establish himself as the premier Australian bowler, his demolition of the MCC leading to him earning his nickname of Demon. He performed as well on the next tour in 1880, but a finger injury caused him to miss the test match, a key reason for the Australian's loss. He was back in 1882 to settle the score. Barlow followed his opening partner to the pavilion soon after, being caught by Bannerman off the Demon. This brought Lucas to join Ulliott, when the two moved the score on quickly, bringing up the 50 runs within half an hour. Ulliott then attempted to attack Spofforth, but missed the ball after having left his crease, being well stumped by Blackham for 26, what would be the highest score of the innings. Boyle then got in on the act by dismissing Lucas, whilst two more quick wickets from Spofforth let the English six down for 63, the same score as the Australians. Boyle then claimed Barnes, bringing Steele in to join Reid. 
The two managed to add 26 runs before Garrett broke the partnership. Spotted then claimed the remaining two wickets to end the English innings on 101, a lead of 38. The Demon had claimed 7 for 46 in 36.3 overs. He bowled unchanged throughout the innings. The end of the English innings had coincided with the end of the day's play. More heavy rain overnight delayed the start of play until after midday. The English lead was not large, but the difficulty of any batsman to find comfort on the pitch meant that the locals were heavy favourites. Bannerman and Massey again opened the batting for the Australians. The partners complemented each other well, with Bannerman the blocker and Massey the dasher, meaning the bowlers had two different challenges to deal with. It would be Massey, the last man chosen for the tour, who would play the defining innings of the match in what would end up being his only meaningful contribution as an Australian test batsman. Whilst the Raider made things difficult for batting, the outfield was also wet and muddy. This meant, until the outfield dried, the fielding side would almost have a greater difficulty. The ball had become wet and difficult to grip, whilst the fielders slipped and skidded over the muddy terrain. Massey decided this was the best time to attack. Bannerman set to defence, which enabled Massey to play with freedom. He launched into the bowling, with the English unable to keep a lid on the scoring. The 38-run deficit was cleared within half an hour of play beginning, whilst Massey would bring up his half-century, the sole one of the match, in only 45 minutes. Hornby tried all his bowlers with no success, although Massey was dropped at long off with a score at 47. It wasn't until Massey had reached 55, out of a score of 66, that Steele, the sixth bowler used, managed to skittle his leg stump. He'd hit nine boundaries and had given the Australians a chance. However, the drying pitch was now starting to aid the English spinners. Over the next 10 overs from Massey's departure, the Australians lost four wickets for 13 runs, leaving them in their precarious position of 5 for 79. The captain Murdoch, who had managed to hold out as wickets tumbled around him, was joined by Blackham. They managed to take the score onto 99 before a short rain shower brought about lunch and a brief respite for the batsmen. Blackham was caught off the bowling of Pete without any addition to the score upon the resumption of play. This brought Jones in to join his skipper. The two managed to bring the score onto 114 and were batting comfortably before the biggest controversy of the match erupted. Murdoch turned a ball to leg for a single. Jones reached his crease whilst Littleton had collected the ball and thrown it to WG, who was near the stumps at short point. Jones nodded to Grace, then left his crease, ostensibly to do some pitch maintenance, assuming the ball was dead. Grace, however, threw the stumps down and appealed to the umpire, who gave Jones out. Murdoch challenged this decision, but the English did not withdraw their appeal and the aggrieved Jones had to make his way back to the pavilion. There was much discussion about this incident. Most believed that the run-out was within the rules, however, that it was against the spirit of the game. One member of the crowd was heard to say that Jones ought to thank the champion for teaching him something. However, the Australians almost to a man felt aggrieved by the actions of Grace. The Ings ended up closing soon after. Murdoch was run out much less controversially for 29, with a score at 122, leaving the English with an 85-run target for victory. The anger of the Australian players continued to bubble over the innings break. Spothers in particular was incensed, with George Giffen later writing that the demon strode up and down the dressing room like a caged lion, declaring that this thing can be done, and firing up his teammates. By the time the Australians made their way to the middle, it seemed as if they were prepared to die in order to right the injustice they felt had been done to them. 20,000 spectators were in attendance by the commencement of the final innings. The English captain Hornby opened with grace as Spotheth waited at the top of his mark. The innings started comfortably for the English, going at a run a minute until Spotheth split Hornby's defences with an off-cutter, scattering the stumps. Barlow made his way to the crease, but received a carbon copy of the ball that dismissed his captain, out for a golden duck. This brought Uli in to join Grace with a score at 2 for 15 in front of a deathly silent crowd. The two batsmen held their nerve, batting fluently to put on 36 in just over half an hour. Garrett was replaced by Boyle, but Spotheth, like in the first innings, could not have the ball taken from his hand. The English only required another 34 for victory, but the Demon refused to make it easy. Suddenly, Ulliot, who was playing for Spotheth's off-cutter, nicked a straight one behind to Blackham, who took a smart catch. 
With the third wicket gone, England lost their nerve. In the following over, Ball managed to get the key wicket, with Grace hitting a catch to Bannerman in mid-off, dismissed for 32. The keeper Littleton joined Lucas at the crease and started with a boundary. However, Spotheth and Boyle then tightened the screws, run slow to a trickle, then stopped completely. The Demon and the Very Devil delivered 12 consecutive maidens, the batsmen grimly defending, but they were able to penetrate the excellent fielding of the Australians. Spotheth, who had been bowling consistently to Lucas, then conceived a plan. He whispered to Murdoch, who instructed Bannerman to misfield a ball, which swapped the strike. This allowed Spotheth to enact his plan to Littleton and, after another four consecutive maidens, managed to bowl his target with another off-cutter. 5 for 66 soon became 7 for 70 as Spotheth struck twice in the same over. There were still 15 runs to get. The crowd were enthralled. The tension and stress amongst them caused many of them to faint. One man had a heart attack and could not be resuscitated. Another man was so nervous he chewed through his umbrella handle. The scorers were writing incorrect names into the score sheet. Lucas, who had witnessed the carnage at the other end, batted resiliently but with not much impact on the scoreboard. The new batsman Barnes hit a two, then three buys were taken. Ten runs to win. Finally, Spotheth got Lucas to play the ball onto his stumps. This brought number 10 Stud to the crease. Stud had twice made centuries against Australian sides, but was so nervous that he'd spent the last few minutes walking around the pavilion with the blanket on his head, unable to watch what was happening. He composed himself enough to see off the last two balls of Spotheth's over, the 28th year bowled consecutively since the start of the innings. His last 11 overs had seen four wickets for the cost of only two runs. He would not bowl another. Ball began the 55th over bowling to Barnes. His first ball lifted unexpectedly, striking the batsman on the glove. The ball ballooned to point where Murdoch took a simple catch. Nine down with the number 11 Pete walking to the crease. He had already done his part by taking eight wickets in the match and would not have expected to be required to bat. Yet here he was, England's final hope. He managed to squeeze two from a risky shot to leg off his first ball. The next ball nearly bowled him. Ball delivered the final ball of the 55th over. Pete looked to launch it over the pavilion, but could only look back as the clatter of stumps ended the match. England had been bowled out for 77, eight short of victory. Since the fall of Ulliott, they had lost eight for 26 in 32 overs. The best players that England could offer had been humbled for the first time on home soil. The crowd rushed the ground, lifting up the hero of the match Spotheth and carrying him to the pavilion. He had taken 7 for 44 in the second innings and had combined 14 for 90 in the match. He had bowled unchanged in both innings and it was his drive that convinced his teammates that they could win. The support he received from Boyle, who allowed the batsman no respite at the other end, and his fielders had greatly contributed to the result as well. The English press struggled to comprehend the defeat, but equally heaped praise on the Australians. Bell's life said it was no disgrace to lose to such a magnificent 11, whilst Punch praised Spotheth, but equally bemoaned the lack of backbone from the English batsman. Most famously of all came the mock obituary published in the Sporting Times five days after the match had ended. In affectionate remembrance of English cricket, which died at the Oval on 29th of August 1882, deeply lamented by a large circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances, R.I.P. Note, the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. The rest of the tour was a bit of an anti-climax, with much regret that it was no follow-up match to the extraordinary scenes at the Oval. They played another eight games before sailing home, stopping in Philadelphia for two games on the way. Overall, they had played 39 matches, winning 24 and only losing four. Upon their return, they were banqueted and feasted in both Sydney and Melbourne, with each player receiving a medal for their accomplishment. Their spectacular achievement against the best that England could array against them had been an amazing result that ensured international cricket was here to stay. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.